Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I'm your host, Doug Parsons. On today's fantastic episode, we have Laura Hansen from EcoAdapt and Jenny Hoffman from Adaptation Insight, two legendary figures in the adaptation universe. Don't forget to visit the website at americadapts.org or consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and look up America Adapts. Okay, stick around. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to let you know that I've created a Facebook group for the podcast. It's called America Adapts, the climate change podcast community. Consider joining if you want to stay more involved with podcasts. It allows you to get more updates on Facebook. And some of you are thinking, I don't need any more f- Facebook updates. Well, don't join the group. But it's also an opportunity for you to interact with the podcast. You can ask questions. I'm going to put up comments and any sort of, I can't think, fun things that I want to create a community for America Adapts, which reminds me, I had put something up last night asking people could guess just based on pictures who were the guests going to be today, and I have a winner. It's Molly Cross from the Wildlife Conservation Society. Great guesswork, Molly. Okay, I'm not going to delay this any longer. Let's start this podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I'm Doug Parsons, your host. We have a special Halloween edition of the podcast today, and I'm doing something for the first time. I have two guests on at two different locations, and they are Laura Hansen and Jenny Hoffman. Laura and Jenny, how are you? I'm doing great. (laughs) I I should probably give you better prompting on who should talk first, but I'm going to just leave it kind of loose. But welcome to the podcast. And so I don't know the best way to like sort of defer to people to talk. And you two, neither of you, I think, have issues of speaking up. And I'm going to try to step back (laughs) and let you guys do most of the talking. Just to give a little bit of context here, this is my Halloween special. It's the Friday before Halloween. You guys have any Halloween plans? Of course. Well, what are they? Are you dressing up? Uh, what are you dressing up as? You, you know, I haven't picked my costume yet this year. I wait for some current event to spark my fancy. Jenny, have you picked a costume yet? No, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't know as I'm dressing up. I think I'll engage in other fall-like activities such as more cider pressing. <laughs> Just got Get like- another 15 Apple gallons. torture? You're going to torture apples for Halloween? That's right. Well, because, you know, with climate change, soon there will be no trees left on Earth. and So you better torture be them while you can. Exactly. Don't want them to go to waste. Well, apple torturing and undetermined costume, and I'm not sure what I'm going at either. So that's a lot of good planning. Very, that's <laughs> That heads into our adaptation special here. So for fo- I invited these two on because I wanted to talk about adaptation, and so I'm going to let them describe a little bit more about their background, but what we're doing in this episode today is we're going to be talking about a book these two wrote, Climate Savvy, and I just want to give some background, but Laura and Jenny, if you could sort of describe your own experiences, but you guys have been doing adaptation when adaptation wasn't cool. I mean, if someone's been doing adaptation for five years, they feel like they've been in it forever, and you put that all to shame. So maybe we could just start with you, Laura, and just kind of give some of your background, who you are, where you work, where you located, and you know, just what have you been doing with adaptation and how long? Uh, I've been working on adaptation since about 1998, um, going into the last century. And uh, I came about it uh, quite by accident. Uh, Dr. Hoffman and I used to both be photobiologists, and we cared about ozone depletion. And Photobiologists, not as in we had modeling careers as biologists, but studying the effects of light. 
Okay. <laughs> solid clarification. And not just any light, but ultraviolet light. And in 1998, I was um, hired by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to work on uh, ozone depletion and coral reef decline and coral disease. Uh, it just happened that 1998 also was the first global coral bleaching event, at which point it seemed like there might be another stressor that was awfully important to look at, that being uh, increasing ocean temperatures. And that sort of forever changed uh, my career. And then I said, Jenny, what about you? Oh, what about me? Well, Dr. Hansen, I would point out, I guess this was before your career was changed, but in grad school, I was working on ultraviolet radiation and effects of it on marine embryos and larvae. And Lara happened to have this totally cool solar simulator set up at her lab in grad school and where she could control temperature as well as light. And so I was looking at uh, DNA repair and I said, gosh, DNA repair, enzymatic, temperature sensitive. Why don't we do an experiment looking at the interactive effects of temperature and UV? So that was sort of our first collaboration uh, scientifically around what temperature changes might mean in c- combination with other issues. But yeah, then it's true. We didn't get professional until later on. So Lara went off to WWF. I was still in grad school and then Lara hired me to help out with one little adaptation project. And then um, she was putting together sort of the precursor to climate savvy, which is buying time, uh, Laura, help me with the title, Buying Time or Resource. A user's manual for building resistance and resilience to climate change and natural systems. Mm. Right. So Laura's at WWF at that point, um, working with the various conservation programs. And obviously, people who are starting to think about climate change needed a lot of help. And the way I think Buying Time set the stage for how Laura and I have continued to work on climate change is that, well, you know, what are people focusing on who are the different audiences. And, and so we broke it down into uh, montane ecosystems and forests and oceans, etc. So that was an edited volume, different people writing different chapters, we edited it. And a lot of the feedback we got on that was it was sort of the first guide or practical take on any of this. So instead of just saying, you know, things are going to hell in a handbasket, it was, all right, you know, what are we going to do? What are we doing? Um, and that was really fun. And then Lara seduced me into working for WWF and traveling around the world and talking to people. And for me, some of that, the way that really has informed my application work is things are, everything is so context dependent, not just the ecological context, but the social context, political context. The first, the first adaptation project Lara hired me to work on uh, was in three different countries and one of them had a coup partway through the project and the one of the key government positions we were supposed to be collaborating with like didn't get filled by the end of the project and another project uh we had later on uh was in another country where we got to finish our project before the coup happened but then there was a coup and the major government who was really excited about the project and was going to implement it he was out so it's uh so for me that's emphasized adaptation or climate the effects of climate change it's Viewing it separately from all other aspects of reality doesn't really make much sense. And thanks for reminding me that both of you have doctorates, and I'm just kind of shoving that in my face. So, um, yeah, I appreciate, yeah, appreciate that reminder. I didn't give you your proper professional due, but yes, both very, very esteemed 
professional. So EcoDapt, I want to sort of pivot into the book, but EcoDapt, you guys started EcoDapt before you actually wrote the book, right? We did them simultaneously because we're insane. <laughs> really? So that EcoDapt's that young. I mean, so the t- 2011. Well, no, writing a book does not happen in one year. Yeah, okay, all um, right. Yep. The yeah. book was started in 2008. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. And so you guys, for people to know, EcoDapt, and I, it's, it's the place that Laura currently works and Jenny used to work at, but it's a, a great organization. I, we could have a whole episode on that, but I just, mm-hmm. you are doing these things in parallel. And so I'm just, that's one of my questions is, is why did you decide to write a book? Why did we decide to write a book? I, I, well, in part, there were things that were not in buying time when we'd, when we'd written that there were components that we wanted to share differently. So some things had evolved and some things had been left out of buying time. We wanted to write something that was a little bit more linear. Buying time was really, like Jenny said, was written for habitat type by habitat type. And we wanted something that, could take you through the full arc of what are all those things you need to think about when you're thinking about climate change. Plus, as Jenny pointed out, all of the other things that are going on that need to be accounted for simultaneously. And we thought that this was a great opportunity to do that. We have a whole list of things that would go in volume two as well, but we haven't done that yet. That's right. So, so Jenny, who was the target audience when you guys were writing this book? It was it was mixed. So when you look at some of the organizations that are tackling climate change, you start thinking about the target audience. It's like, well, we want natural resource managers and policymakers and landowners and foresters, blah, 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 a whole bunch of different audiences. And because you can't write a single volume that targets everyone, a lot of guidance had been around, had, had been at sort of a more generic level. And what we did with buying time which was certainly interesting for us and hopefully for people who read it. And there's part of buying time, which is sort of a broad general component that, I mean, it's, it's mostly focused on people who do conservation-y sort of stuff or environment-related stuff. But we had that generic part, and then we thought, you know, someone's got to contextualize all of this um, for people who are doing very particular things. And again, because it's one book, we didn't, get insanely specific but we thought well the types of things that people do related to conservation and natural resource are you know looking at pollutants so if you're thinking about pollutants and climate change you know what would that look like uh, protected areas how does climate change play into protected areas or restoration so the second part of the book each chapter is sort of targeting a particular type of activity which again tends to go more with the um, conservation natural resource management crowd but actually we had a whole section on policy yeah. Yep. So we had the natural resource section, right? We had the generic section, the natural resource managers kind of section, and the policy and regulation sort of section. You know, so much has been done in the natural resource universe on adaptation, but I mean, do, are you guys familiar with any books that are similar to yours that sort of look at other sectors? I, mean, I can't think of the top of my head. Like, has anyone written a book? And because it just we're con- you know, it's all natural resource management, and it, it, until recently, it seemed like it dominated that kind of thinking on adaptation. I would say non-natural resource management people have dealt with it, but they've been more mainstreamy about it. Like the first federal agency to to do anything with climate change really was, I think, the Army Corps. They put out guidance. Do you remember what year that was, Laura? I don't remember what year that was. Right, five billion years ago or so. They put out something saying, 
um, hey, sea level rise, you got to include that in infrastructure design. Army, any Army Corps projects have to include climate change, uh, sea level rise. Here's what we're looking at in terms of rate of sea level rise that you should look at. So I think there's been more on adaptation and non-natural resource stuff than people maybe realize. It's just maybe some of it is more mainstreamed into best practices or technical guidebooks that people have to refer to anyway or that sort of thing. I'm curious if you guys were doing this in the aughts that I think back in the days of the inconvenient truth when, you know, mitigation was the the primary focus, but I actually read a recent piece and do you guys know Dave Roberts who used to write for Grist? Does that ring a bell? He wrote a piece called preventing climate change and adapting to it are not morally equivalent. And he just was, and this was like just a couple of years ago, he was bashing the whole, you know, the concept of adaptation. He thinks it's, it's for, elitist it's just once again first world countries focusing their time and resources on adapting themselves to climate change and it's going to take away the emphasis from you know mitigation and that that's the bigger struggle and you heard some of that criticism you know maybe 10 15 years ago but i thought that kind of went away but apparently it hasn't and i'm just curious if you guys have any thoughts to that kind of line of thinking I don't think that there's anyone who works in adaptation who doesn't think that mitigation is vitally important and woefully behind. But I think it shows a certain denial of reality to insist that doing adaptation is putting mitigation aside because, in fact, the changes are happening in the world around us and you can continue to make management and planning decisions based on the way things were done historically and sort of determine that you will make bad decisions going forward, or you can say, wow, I'm going to recognize that there's change afoot and I'm going to make decisions differently. I think a lot of people categorize adaptation in sort of very simple terms in that it's, well, that's us choosing to live with climate change as opposed to, as opposed to doing something about it and failing to recognize that you actually should be doing both of them simultaneously because Otherwise, you're going to get bad outcomes. Jenny, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, as you know, my thing now, I love like decision analysis and really looking at the process of decision making. And that totally underlines what Lara said is that, I mean, there's part of adaptation, which is where you just sit back and you say, ooh, what about climate change? What's it doing? What is it doing? Uh, what are the big effects of climate change? How do we deal with those? But there is also this whole aspect of things. There are decisions being made all the time that have the potential to influence the trajectory of climate change, our vulnerability to climate change, the effectiveness of those actions may be affected by climate change. So if you're making decisions and you want to make good decisions, then you want to think, well, what are, you know, what sorts of risks are involved? Um, and so from that perspective, as, as Laura said, if you acknowledge the reality that climate change is already happening um, and it's going to continue happening, then any decision that involves some level of climate related risk, if made well, will sort of be adaptation because you'll be saying, I'm making this decision. There's a climate risk. How am I going to handle that? And I would I would also add, from an environmental justice perspective, I I do not see adaptation as just like wealthy first world nations focusing on themselves or wealthy communities focusing on themselves. I remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine who said, you know, we need to focus on climate change because if we don't do something, people will suffer. And people are suffering now all the time um, for reasons not related to climate change, for reasons related to climate change. Adaptation, again, it's an acknowledgement that people are suffering now 
um, if we don't do things now, people will continue to suffer. Their suffering may get worse. Some of what we need to do to limit future suffering is reducing emissions, but some of it is dealing with the very real consequences of actions we've taken in the past, climate change that's already happened. So I think adaptation as well as mitigation is a responsibility that we all share for all people. Yeah, I was pretty annoyed with peace and I you know there's this <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's just this assumption, I think that was the point that you were making, Lars, that okay, if you're working in the adaptation universe, you should somehow be this expert in energy mitigation too, and they're just two very separate fields. And I hope and I pray, you know, with the Paris Accords, that they get these things under control because it makes the adaptation people, our jobs, a lot more difficult if you don't get that temperature under control. But it's just a different tract. And so the idea that you wouldn't plan for it, it, it that's annoying. And, and on, on the flip side, too, is I think as people start to get their heads around adaptation as a concept, to me, there's an opportunity, too, like, you know, with mitigation, change your light bulbs, put solar panels on your roof, and sometimes it doesn't capture the public's imagination. But with adaptation, you would there's an opportunity there for the public to kind of say, all right, this is where we kind of come together. We're adapting. And, you know, maybe you would make some progress on the mitigation side because people start thinking about climate change more deeply. And I guess that's my naive hope that adaptation might actually be able to lead the way to some bigger changes. Uh, there's actually lots of case case examples of communities where mitigation wasn't on the table until after some conversations about the implications of local climate change and what would be entailed in adaptation, leading people to realize, oh, wow, mitigation would actually be a really good idea for us. So sometimes it's adaptation is sometimes a gateway drug to mitigation. That's right. The other thing, like I recognize that this is a battle that is, already lost and all that, but I hate the difference. Like the people are like, oh, mitigation versus adaptation. It's like yeah. in in say the natural resource management or the you know, dealing with natural disasters, etc. All everywhere else in the world, mitigation is a term that means sort of reducing harm. And you can reduce harm by making it less likely that something horrible is going to happen in the first place. Uh, you can reduce harm by you know, making the systems more resistant or resilient uh, to bad things that might happen. So, like, think about toxic waste spills. Or, you know, I live out in the part of the country where we've got a lot of oil trains coming through and coal trains coming through. And you don't focus everything on, well, how do we prevent? I mean, it's really important to prevent oil train derailments. But you wouldn't say, oh, there's been a derailment. Oh, well, you know, I'm not going to focus on you know, making sure that the derailments don't damage things because that would be giving in. You say, I'm going to fight like heck to make it not likely at all, you know, reduce the likelihood of derailments as much as I can. But I'm also going to acknowledge that reducing that risk to zero is pretty darn impossible. So in addition to trying to reduce the risk of the bad thing happening in the first place, I want to reduce the likelihood that if that bad event happens, it's going to have the worst possible consequences. So everyone else talks about mitigation as the whole spectrum of activities. And yeah, I wish the climate world didn't. But like I said, so many battles already fought and lost. But if you're if you're a pedant like us, like me, I don't know, would you consider yourself a pedantic kind of person, Laura? I, I fear that I might be kind of guilty. Yeah, exactly. So we can still get huffy about things that are totally pointless. Good. I still get upset that people can't conjugate a verb with the noun data. Yeah. Oh man. Don't yeah, and then the, the New York Times, 
Like the New York Times, they use millenniums now. Really? Yeah. I don't know what is up with that. I haven't, <laughs> anyway, yeah. How can we possibly tackle climate change when we can't even get? When we can't even manage manage grammar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you look at where adaptation was in 2011 when you guys published that book and you look at what's happened now, five years in some ways is a lifetime when it comes to adaptation with the government, with NGOs, with people, how they're communicating. If you kind of kind of go back to when you wrote that book, do you do you feel like what's happened today is what you might have predicted or is it a good thing? Is adaptation today in a good spot based on like the sort of what's happened in the past five years? And Dr. Hoffman, give it a go. I should just say one of your names. Jenny, please answer. Hey, sure. I'd love to take a crack at that. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's in a, in a good place. And part of that, I I think as a, this is totally like my own theory based on very little data, but I think as, as new sort of fields of action and inquiry develop, they go from being really simplistic to being able to uh, incorporate more and more complexities. So in the early days, you know, climate change was like, oh, you know, climate change is happening and people would look at average temperatures and precipitation. Um, there was all this focus on species range changes as, you know, resulting just from what happened with climatic factors. And now, I mean, there's still a lot of emphasis on uh, species range shifts resulting from climatic factors, but people are trying to say, no, you know, there's there's all these biological, ecological interactions. And, you know, now we have evidence that there's some uh, evolutionary adaptation that can happen. So people are trying to bring that into it. And people are recognizing that, oh, yeah, it's not just there isn't some generic climate variable that that you need to know about. It's like you have to say, well, what is our decision or the ecological system that we're looking at? And then, you know, sometimes what you care about is, you know, growing season length. Sometimes what you care about is the timing of the peak spring flooding or the other times it's the volume of that flooding. So I think um, in the adaptation world, people are starting to, they're, they're able to incorporate more complexity into their thought. And I think it's also spreading out more into different areas of activity. So people are starting to think about in very specific circumstances. So I'm engaged in this type of activity in this place. Yeah, I'm doing uh, habitat conservation planning in California, for instance, a project I've been working on. What does that mean? You know, that's a regulatory process. What are the things I have to be able to say, you know, or yeah. So I think it's, I think it's progressing. I think it's not perfect. I think it's never going to be perfect, but that's great because the point is that people keep thinking. And Laura, any thoughts? So I think that there's, there's two halves to this. There's sort of how is the field changing and then how is the application of that field changing? Um, and it, the field yeah. is changing dramatically, which is, I think really exciting. Um, and that people are thinking about greater complexity and it's not just species and it's not just climate envelope models laid over species ranges telling you where things are going to move. And that's all extremely exciting. And we're starting to see a lot more of the application of it, like people using it to make actual management decisions, cities using it to affect their planning, states mandating its use, having an executive order that says that agencies are supposed to incorporate it. But we're still and all of that is tremendously exciting coming from a field that had enough people that could we we could almost fill an elevator just a decade or so ago. A fair sized (laughs) elevator. Um that's where we used to hang out. That's where the adaptation community used to hang out in the elevator. But now that there's a lot more people who 
who identify as being part of this and identify it as being part of their work or just use the information to make better decisions. But the, the interactions that you can still have on a daily basis with folks who are not incorporating climate into how they make a decision for a long-term planning set is still pretty staggering. And it says we still have a long way to go before the field has infiltrated full application. And can you imagine five years ago there being even one adaptation podcast? And so here we are. <laughs> Clearly a massive advance in the exactly. field. Right. Well, okay. So I, it's, it's very exciting all the things that have gone on here, but like two distinct things that have happened that are t- to me bad things. And first off, you guys know that the cap and trade legislation that failed, you know, this, it's, it's, I think we're going on six years now. And if you recall, it was just sort of revolutionizing, at least at the state wildlife agency level, on what a, their commitment was to adaptation. Everyone was talking about it. You would go to the Association for Fish and Wildlife Agency meetings, and the Climate Change Committee was standing room only. And now they might have nine people in the room. And, you know, I had Davia Palmieri on here about a month ago, and she basically admitted that. And so had that cap and trade passed, had they directed the sort of money that they were talking about, I think that money – filtering through the system would have really supercharged a lot of what we're doing. So there was a missed opportunity. And I think another thing that's is harder to put a finger on, but I've talked about it frequently on this podcast is, and Laura, you and I have chatted a bit about is that especially the federal government and to uh, a lesser extent, the private sector emphasizing resilience, the, the idea of what is resilience versus adaptation. And so you have resilience officers, you have the office of resilience and, there's, I think, the misunderstanding of even what that might mean, and that word is sort of taken over, and I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. And so the state of adaptation today is, well, you know, we're in the business of resilience, and I not necessarily think that's a good thing. That was a lot. Um, I don't know where to unpack that. Jenny, should we start with um, offsets? We started with cap and trade. Do we want to start with our tirade on offsets? Yeah, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's still around. But there was that great website uh, for the program offering cheating offsets. So <laughs> this is a great send up of carbon offsets. It's really good not to not to cheat on your on your partner. And so we really want everyone not to cheat. But for that unavoidable cheating, you know, every time you have a fight or cheat on your partner, negative energy goes into the atmosphere and builds up over time. So uh, this this program is saying minimize the cheating but for that unavoidable cheating you can buy cheating offsets you can pay someone else to be uh monogamous or to remain celibate um Where are we and with this? <laughs> this is our our offset ramp uh ramp and yeah and then said and yeah if you uh have uh if part of your business is cheating then we can offer you know corporate uh cheating offsets so offsets don't reduce emissions um they say given it emissions are happening, you can buy yourself an indulgence and not feel so bad about it. Actually, relating this to cap and trade, man, here in Washington state, it's been interesting because a while ago, uh, everyone, the people who were thinking about climate change, a lot of them were like, there's no way uh, carbon taxes are politically viable. We're going to focus on cap and trade. And this is even though there were some elected officials who were saying, I'd love to introduce a carbon tax bill. Um, but cap and trade in Washington failed. Um, and now people are looking at carbon tax. It's a very contentious initiative on the ballot this fall where one group of people said, 
we want to introduce carbon tax legislation. We want it to be something that Republicans will like. Washington State doesn't have a an income tax, so anything involving raising or lowering taxes is contentious because we have really high high taxes to compensate for absence of income tax. But so they're raising this carbon tax and then addressing potential inequity by lowering taxes in other areas. But there's another whole coalition of pretty much all the environmental organizations, labor and environmental justice communities that aren't going along with that initiative at all. And they're saying that initiative doesn't help low-income communities reduce their emissions. It doesn't do anything about absence of good public transit, for instance. So they want a, a carbon tax bill where the money from the taxes is rolled back into actually reducing emissions, not just trying to keep a little more money in people's pockets. And so that to me is interesting. So is the, the link here though, is the, my point about the cap and trade is like the overall yeah. intent of that cap and trade? Because yeah, I, I, maybe it I, wasn't related. Maybe it was just, you mentioned cap and trade and then thinking about cap and trade in Washington. But your thing, I think in adaptation, there are people, if there's money on the table, people are interested in the money on the table. And sometimes that means people who are interested in adaptation are able to actually do adaptation. Other times it means people who are interested in money think about how they can do adaptation washing. And this this is where I think your two resilience and um, cap and trade funding are somewhat related because resilience is like sometimes it's a, you know, sincere and honest way to roll climate change adaptation in with other things. Other times it's people saying, I want some adaptation money, so I'm going to say I do resilience because I don't really do adaptation. But if I say resilience, maybe, you know, I can get adaptation money. I don't know, Laura, it's like, So, yes, I'm down with everything Jenny just said. The other thing, though, I want to add to what she said about the the challenge of cap and trade for funding conservation is, yeah, it's a bummer that there wasn't money put toward conservation from that. But I'm not entirely certain that with a cap and trade set up like that, that you weren't sort of what is what is the the official saying, stealing from Peter to pay Paul um, Mm -hmm. in that you're. You're giving money to conservation, but by doing cap and trade, you're not really reducing the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions up in the atmosphere necessarily, because you're essentially trading biological carbon for fossil carbon in most of the cases where this is happening. Um, so the net return on protecting the environment isn't happening there. So in the short term, you're getting some money that you can use toward conservation and protection, but in the long term, you've done nothing on the mitigation side to reduce the harm caused to the site by climate change, because that's still continuing down the path because we haven't stopped burning fossil fuels because, and now I can have my diatribe conflating fossil and biological carbon as equivalent entities that you can trade is unfortunately a false equivalence. Biological carbon is always moving. It's a really rapid cycle. Biological carbon goes in and out of pockets all the time, whereas fossil carbon has been very politely sitting uh, in sequestered locations, not contributing to the amount of carbon in the atmosphere for a very long time. And it was only because of our foolish activities that we have freed it to cause us harm. Uh, in Washington State this year, this year, last year, wildfires were the second biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in the state. And this is something Lara and I had a little rant about ages ago. You know, if people are looking at protecting forests as a way of sequestering carbon um, and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, 
if one of the effects of climate change is increased frequency and severity of wildfires, that makes forests a less reliable carbon sink. Um, and it's not that, who was that, Lara, ages ago at WWF said, we should be stopping climate change to save the forests, not saving the forests to stop climate change. That was actually uh, Ken Caldera. Yeah, go Ken. Um, yeah, of Stanford, not WWF. Right. And it's not that forests don't have a huge role to play in the global carbon cycle, but particularly in light of all the wildfires running around all over the place, they aren't going to get us where we need to get. Look to your point about the cap and trade. Yeah, I mean, I get that broader context of it. And I guess the sort of short term pulse of adaptation funding just is so attractive versus like what's what's the long game there. We so, are yeah. all so easily bought. Right. Well, <laughs> you, you, you remember how exciting it was. And you had executive directors showing up to these meetings and it was just it was insane. I felt the same way about it then. Okay. Well, I, I want to sw- swing this back to your book uh, again. We're here for the five-year anniversary of Climate Savvy. Let's say someone, if you think of the target audience when you were writing that book, a practitioner or natural resource manager, today, if someone approached you and wanted to do just some basic on-the-ground adaptation work, would you recommend that they read your book? Or are there other things that you would rec... And this is just going to hurt your sales, but um, other other ways that you would sort of recommend that they get started? Or they should read your book. Oh, I think by all means they should read our book. Don't you agree, Jenny? I think sending us a lot of money might be just as effective, actually. That's actually also a solid choice. Fortunately, Jenny and I don't have to tell people to read our book because there are actually other entities that have our book on a recommended resource list. So we get to sort of hang back and not have to push the uh, skyrocketing sales of that volume, which is available in many libraries in the United States as well for those people who want to just support their public library. I would say, well, so to quote uh, the wise and brilliant Molly Cross, who I know has been on your podcast, I don't know if she thinks she remembers saying this, but I remember her saying it. She said the best place to start is somewhere. So I think people who are attracted to the idea of reading a book and they like the way they like our cover art, which was a huge struggle, by the way. Um, I was going to ask about the penguin. That's right. Yeah. Read our book. You know, like if that seems cool, do it. If you're like, I don't have time to read a book. Forget that. I'm going to, you know, I want a short little pamphlet, plenty of short little pamphlets out there. If you're like, ah, oh, you know, I don't, I don't have time to read anything. I need someone to talk to me. Great. There are a lot of people out there who will, who will talk to you. And or, or Jenny and I would be happy to record a copy of the book. We'd read it aloud. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, we can hire professional actors, right? And that's like, like I said, with what I do now, my focus, I love integrating climate change into decisions. So not adaptation focused decisions, but hey, you know, you're designing a culvert, you're writing a conservation plan. You know, what are you doing? Great. Let's think about climate change in terms of what you're doing. And that sort of, to get that specific, you need something that's either written very specifically for what you're doing, and there's not that much of that right now, or you need to talk to someone, you know, bring in climate decision expert to go along with your your process. But it's all, and it wasn't, this is probably something a lot of people say, but you want willing partners. You know, you don't want to necessarily go out and force people to work with you because, you know, every, every adaptation decision plan or whatever, we all have different personalities and different styles. And um, again, the, adaptation group molly cross put together a while ago all of us trainers and planners like 
well, what, um, you know, what best practices are there? What advice can we give to people? And they're trying to decide which one of our brilliant programs to tie into. After, after a while, the group realized they're all, they're all fine. They're just different. And so, so long as you're in the, the universe of people who, who do reasonable, reasonable work, find the written guidance or the individual or the video that speaks to you. Well, I guess what's available now that wasn't available five years ago is just in, I think both of you are involved with these things. It's just the various trainings that are, that people can take. They can take day long trainings or week long trainings. You know, the National Conservation Training Center offers all sorts of things. And so that now exists that wasn't there five years ago. Mm-hmm. Your book and everything that's in it, I'm curious. You know, there's these two associations and there's probably more. You know, there's the American Society of Adaptation Professionals and then there's ACO. What, what is that standard? It's the Association of, Association of Climate Change Officers. Right. And so ACO has really gotten into the business of certification. And I'm just curious if you guys have an opinion on that. And I, I was a little bit involved. I, I, uh, I think it's Dan Krieger who, who leads it, but I mean, I think he's been looking for feedback from different practitioners on how to create the different certification. But, you know, should a adaptation practitioner at this stage be certified to really kind of do the things they need to do? Lara? <laughs> oh, man. Um, Bring it on. So it, it's hard to say what you'd be certified in at this point. I mean, I think it's a great idea to have some to have training. I mean, we desperately need capacity building in this area because the vast majority of people are not formally trained in adaptation and how it incorporates into whatever it is they're doing. And people need some help in figuring that out. It's it it there's a lot of it that's that is common sense logical thought thought uh trains, but some of it requires reframing the way you learned how to do stuff. Um and so I'm all for finding ways to build that capacity through um formal and informal trainings. Certification is a funny thing because usually you would have a board of people who would determine what are the best standards and what should go into that in order to get a certification. That's usually how professional certification happens in most other fields. And I don't know if we, we have the, I don't know if we, we have the, the data that could tell us what, what that should be yet. Um, that said, I think there's certainly some, low bar stuff you could do to sort of change people's framing and put out there. But being certified seems, I don't know. Well, there's some, you know, I guess more mature associations, you know, you think of planners, that's, it's very common to, to be certified. And I think the, the wildlife society has a pretty long standing program of certifying wildlife biologists. And it's my understanding. A lot of that is just continuing education credits. It's, you're just constantly exposing yourself to the field. Whereas, you know, what does it mean to truly be certified? Right. I think that's where ACO is coming from. I mean, this, again, we're to me, to the extent that climate change affects everything, it's, it's good to have people taking really different perspectives um, and working from within different uh, types of quote unquote cultures um, to handle it. So ACO is, you know, they're targeting more um, sort of the, the corporate E-suite kind of thing where if you're big business and you want to know that you have people in your business who are can talk about climate change knowledgeably. It's not so much that they take a training and get certified, but it's, as you said, like, oh, they've taken this training, uh, you know, climate change 101 or adaptation planning 101. So they're not certified, but 
they at least have had exposure to the ideas so they can help integrate climate change into um, what you're doing. And I think what's different with adaptation, like planning and all of that, if adaptation is bringing climate change into everything, you can't have a society of everything. <laughs> and it, it makes, I mean, this, I, I, again, I think this is, Laura, I'd be interested in hearing what you think about this, but I think adaptation with this funny state in our, our maturation, because we've been saying all along that climate change needs to be mainstreamed. But once you mainstream climate change, then there's not really adaptation. There's someone making a really good design decision about a house or someone doing really good urban planning or, you know, farmers making great decisions about, about crop diversification. So the more people mainstream, the less adaptation will get called out. Although I think there's also always going to, we always need to think about the big challenges climate change itself poses. But yeah, I think as it mainstreams, where do the adaptationists go? Yeah. I mean, ideally it would be sort of like a certification within each field. Yeah. Like I'm a climate savvy certified engineer or I'm a climate savvy sewage treatment plant just operator. You have to have a duration there. Yeah. I like that one climate, didn't work. Climate savvy sewage is a good start. Yeah. So the National Adaptation Forum, which is coming up next May, right? The, the third May version. May 9th, 9th through 11th. I, I'm, I'm part of two panels that were submitted, crossing my fingers. You are trying to, you know, that's supposed to be for everyone doing adaptation. And, you know, I think the natural resource people gravitate toward that that form. But I think the goal is to get just about everyone. And so, I mean, is is that happening with the form where you're it's the, the design of speakers and the sessions are reflecting the diversity of what an adaptation professional is? Is that are you having those kind of conversations? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the goals is, as Jenny said, once you, you want everyone working on it. And part of the interesting piece of adaptation to me is how do you get people to really start making decisions that are cross sectoral and holistic and how do you get better planning to be happening that way? Because it's always been a challenge, even before climate change. And it's sort of just an added incentive to why I'm interested in working from the climate perspective on those issues. How can you make better decisions that involve everyone? So as a result, we've been working really hard to expand the reach of folks who are thinking about adaptation to come to the forum so that that kind of cross-sectoral, cross-interest, cross-jurisdictional thinking can develop, which is more than just having people come. It, that's sort of my ulterior motive of it, I guess, um, which is about advancing the field as a, as a construct as opposed to just the individual application. Um, so to do that, we've actually been doing outreach into these other areas, um, and we're purposefully designing actually a plenary series that includes, of course, natural resources, because often in adaptation planning, once it leaves the the natural resource field, natural resource issues get frequently left out um, because uh, human communities tend to gravitate toward engineered solutions so far in majority. So finding ways to make sure that that's part of everyone's thinking is important. But we're also going to have a plenary on uh, municipal adaptation or local, also including counties. Um, there'll be a plenary on um, adaptation from the community perspective, so non-governmental players and community adaptation, which has a big push toward um, equity conversations, although that will clearly play out in the municipal piece as well. 
Um, there will be a business panel for the first time this year where businesses that are incorporating adaptation into what they're doing will share cool. how they're taking that on. And there will be an international panel sharing lessons from uh, international adaptation efforts, which in many case, cases are much further along than what we've been doing in the United States. And then the final plenary will be uh, an attempt to create examples of what does holistic adaptation look like? What is adaptation that includes communities, the people that live in communities, local government, maybe state and federal government, uh, people thinking about it from a natural resource perspective, from a business perspective, and from a, um, a human development perspective. How are there examples of places where all of those things are taking part together? And later this year, we'll actually be doing a survey of all the people who had sessions submitted um, for them to make their pitch for why uh, they're holistic. The environmental justice aspect you brought up, Laura, environmental justice is a good example of something like adaptation where you need a space where people who care deeply about it can come together and talk among themselves and, you know, they don't have to deal with people saying, oh, that doesn't matter or what are you mm-hmm. talking about? But if environmental justice remains only a conversation within the environmental justice community, um, that's certainly not good enough. You need everyone, you know, anyone doing adaptation planning or municipal planning to say, oh, environmental justice matters a lot, so let's think about it. And from that perspective, the way the adaptation form has evolved is pretty cool because, like, um, the there's a sort of a tribal track. Um, a lot of uh, Native American tribes and people who work with them, they've really taken advantage of NAF as a place where they can come together and have time where they sit and talk um, with people who care about uh, tribal concerns. And then they're kind of also infiltrating, infiltrating the adaptation world um, <laughs> to make sure that, you know, tribal voices are heard. And also the people, um, because the tribes, I think, in this country have been way out in the forefront of doing adaptation and, and experimenting with interesting ideas. So they're not just getting people to recognize that tribal communities matter or communities of color matter, but they're saying, hey, we have actually some lessons to teach you because we've been doing this longer. Well, I think that yeah, Adaptation Universe is bigger than we realize. You know, my next guest is a, a professor in architecture, and he's been publishing in adaptation for a, a while now. And I, I think I mentioned the forum to him, and he hadn't heard of it. And it just, <laughs> and I'm like, how could you not have heard of the National Adaptation Forum? And this guy's obviously plugged in to a large degree, but he's in his, you know, particular niche. And it's, um, yeah. I would highly recommend. And you know, I, I extend an invitation if. You ever want to come back here, Laura, but maybe you think someone else from EcoDAP that's part of the forum, maybe in January, just to come and talk about what's going to be at the forum as a, as a podcast, because you'd be surprised at the diversity of people listening to the podcast that could benefit to know that that forum even exists. So We would love to do that. Excellent. Right, or maybe even, well, no, it's too soon, I was going to say, maybe even before the December deadline for people to submit talks. That's not a bad idea. No, we passed the deadline for sessions. It's open now for individual presentations. Oh, so what's the deadline on that? Jenny seems to know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, some, it's sometime in December. Um, I could I could look it up, but that would involve typing. I could but you that. can go to the NAF website. You can go to the EcoAdapt website. A lot of other people probably have it done. Um, and I would say if you haven't heard of the National Adaptation Forum and you're like, hmm, what will it do for me? Remember, ask not what you can do for no. Ask not what adaptation can do for you, but what you can do for adaptation. That was so. beautiful. I love it. The deadline is December 16th, and we're still accepting proposals for poster sessions, tools, and oral presentations. I'll follow up, but I, I 
maybe we could squeeze one in because I'm surprised at the diversity of listener that's listening to this. Um, and each week there's more listeners, and so I think they would be well like a you know benefit to to know about the the form and potentially participating. So I'll follow up with you on that. Excellent. Well, guys, we've been talking for a while, and I'm sure you probably think that, but um, I... <laughs> no, no, don't go away. Well, I think the attention span of my average listener is about an hour, and we're we're approaching that, and so we we've covered a lot of ground. Ooh, but I... what what? You have good listeners. The average American <laughs> attention span is like twenty seconds. I, I've been asking for feedback on the, the podcast. You know, there's been some, oh, maybe shorten a little bit, but quite a few are just like, no, it's 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 good length because, you know, these are substantive conversations. We're not talking about movie of the week or anything. So that's uh, an hour seems to be working so far until I, I really get some bitter people telling me to shorten it up. But on that note, I just wanted to sort of say, okay, you've written this book and you've sort of, you, you, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, but is there a climate savvy 2.0 in the future, Lara? We have no plans at current to write a climate savvy 2.0. We could maybe do a flip book. I could be up for a flip book, Jenny. How do you feel about that? Puppet show? Oh, puppet show. Yep. I could do that too. Interpretive dance. Right. We did. We did email or talk or something ages ago about it'd be fun to do something more interactive online or whatever, like the adaptation collaboratory that uh, Notre Dame and TNC put together a while ago. One of the features they were working on, I don't know if it's still there, if they've further developed it, is kind of online places you can say, well, here's my process. I'm trying to do this, and I'm at this stage, and at each stage you can kind of click through and you get guidance or materials, uh, information specific to the, that particular process and that particular stage in that process. So we did talk about how it would be cool with Climate Savvy to do something online where you can, oh, it's like the build your own story thing. Yep. Choose your own you, adventure. Exactly. You decide to write a municipal adaptation plan. Do you? Oh. A. Okay. Hey, so the, the take home message is there's not a second version coming out, but okay. If there's not a second version coming out, would you say that this existing version, I mean, is it 99% still relevant, 80% relevant, and don't be self-serving for your own benefit? I mean, is it people should still use your book. That's my question. I think it's still relevant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I use stuff out of it all the time when I teach, and I actually use pieces out of it when I'm trying to explain stuff to people. So I think it is still relevant and useful depending on where you are. If you are just coming into climate change adaptation as a concept, it is extremely useful. If you are farther along and have already been doing it and get the understand the basics of it and are doing the experimental manipulation of testing approaches, it's probably a less useful task and there are more people who are in that space now. Right. And I would say I agree that it's relevant, although, as I say, that I haven't really read the whole thing for a long time. But I'm always I'm always surprised. It's like, oh, man, you know, someone should write something about this idea. And it's like, oh, look, we did. Um, and because like the whole first part of the book, the first section is about climate change, science and all of that. And that certainly has changed a lot. But the later sections, um, a lot of what we were bringing to it is the a way to think about climate change. And I think that the approach that we put out there is still extremely relevant. OK, well. That is useful information, and I just want to give each of you a chance to any, any final thoughts. You know, just plug EcoAdapt or Jenny, what you, you're, you're doing, but uh, that uh, just any final thoughts for for our, my listeners. Uh, Jenny, you go first. 
Yeah. One of the things we said ages ago that I think is still completely relevant is adaptation isn't rocket science. And the trainings I did with EcoDapt and the trainings I've helped with with the National Conservation Training Center. You know, one of my favorite things to hear after those trainings is like, I still don't know what I'm going to do, but now I'm confident that I can do it. So if you're worried about adaptation, if you're confused, whatever, the best place to start is somewhere. Um, find someone or some guidance that works for you and just just have a go. It, it's not rocket science. That's kind of what you're already doing, but with a little twist of climate. I love the twist of climate. Uh, so I like to think about adaptation as surfing. So if if you want to start somewhere, start by surfing. Surfing is all about being in the reality you're in while thinking about what's just up ahead. And adaptation is like being on a surfboard and not only waiting for the next wave, but thinking about where it's going to come from and how you're going to react to it when it shows up. And if we can all do that, it can end up being actually a much better scene in the future where we're all getting to ride the wave rather than being slammed down by it. Although I would add that the beautiful thing about the surfing analogy is if you don't like you don't immediately know how to surf, you start surfing on littler waves, you do get smashed into the sand and all of that. But you say, hey, this is what I have to do to learn how to be a better surfer. And so you get smashed into the sand or you fall off your board and you get back on, you try again, you get better, you get bigger waves. It becomes more fun the more you do it and the more skilled you get. So. So what's a shark in this analogy? Is there a shark? We don't believe in vilifying sharks. We leave that to nature channels. Okay. All right. Good. Good answer. (laughs) All right. Okay. On that note. And so the EcoDapt and uh, Jenny, uh, it's Adaptation Insight. That's your your independent business, right? Adaptation Insight? You bet. I'm going to have just uh, any information you want me to share on the show notes. This is what goes on the, the, the website and how it shows up on iTunes and such. I'll have all that, and I'll probably ask both of you for some cool photograph that I'd like to use in pr- promoting it, the episode. But if there's any additional links or bits of information regarding the forum, just just let me know, and I'm going to include that in all that. But thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. This is the Friday before Halloween, and I hope you guys figure out what you're going to dress up as. We have an adaptive Halloween. There must be some trick-or-treat message with Halloween. I don't know what it is right now. But, Doug, you should make sure that, A, you update your Cake profile, um, and, B, you get your podcast linked up on Cake so that people from there can find it as well. And then when you post things, you can put it in the events page, and occasionally you could even get featured on the front of Cake or in the slice of Cake. I was wondering how I was going to get into that cake newsletter, and so that's the way to do it. Okay, all right. Yeah, you have to have contact, have content happening. Um, well, this is weekly content, okay, but that's good. Good to know. All right, I will. And an idea there, like thinking back to NAF, um, do a little something with NAF ahead of the deadline to get people to submit. But once um, people have been accepted in the NAF, agenda, you could you could go beyond a three way and have a podcast. <laughs> An orgy where you a veritable adaptation orgy. Right, that's a good name for a podcast, by the way. Well, that, at least the title of the episode. But Jenny, go on. Okay. Well, right. So just then, like maybe it would be some of the plenary speakers, or you know, I'd say it's more interesting to pick some like a mix of of individuals who are who are speaking or representing sort of different aspects of the forum, and just do little mini interviews with several of them. And then A, they would all be linking on their institutional profiles, hopefully, and B, that would totally get you in the, in the 
newsletter, cake newsletter. I no. also hear you can buy your way into the cake newsletter. Just, um, you know, I know Lara doesn't like to pitch this kind of thing herself, but, you know, $5,000, bam, you're there. Ooh, I that could also that. make you a sponsor of the National Adaptation Forum. But you can get in much lower than that as well. I don't know. I, we, I, I see, like I said, this is weekly now. I'm doing this. This is like my 16th episode and I, I'm more, more, <laughs> more than happy to plug the form, even the before December deadline. <laughs> but like you said, maybe a follow up and leading up to it. And maybe you guys will give me some sort of special gold medal I get to wear around the, the form, you know? You could like, become the official podcast of the National Adaptation Forum. Have you thought about that? Um, you know, I think I probably did think at some point, hey, I'll be the only podcaster there, so I could be. Yeah, all right. We'll we'll talk about just waiving fees and stuff. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go off offline for that conversation. Um, no, I like all the all these thoughts. Okay, I bet I better wrap this up though, guys. Thanks again. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I hope to see you guys relatively soon. It's always fun touching base. But everyone out there, this is American Apps, the climate change podcast. All right, that's a wrap for this week's episode of America Apps, the Climate Change Podcast. Thanks again to Laura Hansen and to Jenny Hoffman. What a fun conversation. They too are just, they're just legendary figures when it comes to adaptation. I, and I highly recommend you check out their book, Climate Savvy. Now I'm going to have all sorts of things on the show notes what, that we talked about in the podcast discussion. So please check those out. That you can find those at americadaps.org. Also, if you have comments, if you want to just chat with me, I'm, I always hear from someone randomly and I love it. I can be reached at americadaps at gmail.com. Also consider supporting the podcast. There's an option there at the website americadaps.org where you can pay PayPal, maybe $5 once a month. That's less than coffee. Please consider it. And if you have ideas for speakers, I'm always open. I always get great suggestions from folks. People come out of the woodwork. There's some amazing work going on with adaptation out there. And on that note, some upcoming guests. I have Dr. Jess, Jesse Keenan from Harvard University coming up, and I have Jonathan Parfrey from Climate Resolve based out in California. They'll be guests in the upcoming weeks. So please subscribe. Tell your friends about the podcast. Let them know that there's a great discussion being had out there about adapting to climate change. And I want to thank all of you who keep coming back, listening to the podcast. And if you have suggestions to improve it, please let me know. But I do appreciate you listening to it. All right. Over and out. Thanks. Thanks.